York City's homeless policy on track. If not, what will it take to get there? And on today's show, we are very happy to soon, in just a few minutes, be joined by Christine Quinn, who is the president and CEO of WIN, which is one of the largest um, homeless shelter operators and supportive housing unit operators in New York City. Christine Quinn, of course, also former city council speaker, former candidate for mayor, uh, former other things as well in politics and policy. And she will join us in a few minutes to talk about homelessness in the city, the work of her organization, when, where homelessness policy needs to go over the last couple of years of the de Blasio administration and beyond. And of course, we'll also get her take on one of the biggest New York political news stories of the last couple of weeks, which is also a national news story. Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who Quinn worked closely with, opposed at times, got along with at times, um, throwing his hat in the ring as a very likely now candidate for president. So we'll get her take on that and some other things while mostly talking about homelessness with her. Let's bring Christine Quinn on. Uh, former Speaker Quinn, this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette with Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. How are you? I'm good, guys. How are you? Good, Doing thanks. Well. Thank yeah, you. thanks for joining us. So for, for those who might be a little bit unfamiliar, we gave a little bit of an introduction at the top of the show, but talk a little bit about WIN and, and what it does. Sure. Thank you. WIN, uh, formerly known as Women in Need, <clears throat> we are the largest provider of shelter and permanent supportive housing to homeless families with children in New York City. And as I'm sure all the listeners know, we are at an all-time homelessness crisis, largest numbers ever in the shelter. What most New Yorkers don't know, because it's a crime to have your child on the street, so you don't see homeless families on the street, uh, the vast majority of the people in shelter are families with children. Seventy percent of the people in shelter tonight are families with children. Twenty-five percent of everyone in shelter tonight is six years of age or younger. Those little ones, more little ones than can fit in the seats of Madison Square Garden. So the face of homelessness right now in New York City is a single mom and a little child. And at Wynn, we run shelters uh, all across the city. We house 5,000 people a night, about 25 to 2,700 of whom are children under the age of 18. We house 10% of all the homeless families, and we also are the largest provider of supportive housing, which is permanent, 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 but with services on site for homeless families across um, New York State. And what we see in working with these families is the real life story of how people become homeless, why they end up in the shelter system, why if they're leaving shelter, they come back. And we honor the stories that, that our clients share with us I also at WIN putting forth a, a very aggressive advocacy agenda. That's something we have had been successful with, but really want to ha- have a very, very aggressive agenda and successful one this year. Madam Speaker, we want to talk in a moment about... Oh, the call res- me Chris. Chris. We'll call you Chris. You can call Madison me Jared. Mr. Mr. Murphy's so formal. Yes, title, yes. Generally speaking. Uh, so talk about the the drivers, which I think you just uh, alluded to, and, and the question of sort of what is, especially when it comes to families with children, what is driving people into the system, and whether that is changing. The uh, comptroller Scott Stringer reported a couple of weeks back that uh, something that I think others have identified, too, that domestic violence is becoming a more and more important driver 
into the system. Is that something you're seeing on the ground? And what is driving that? Is that about more violence occurring, people being aware of a resource that's out there when it does occur? What do you think explains that that prevalence? Well, look, I think the report the controller put out is, is incredibly important and really illuminating. That said, I don't think there's some upward trend in domestic violence occurring, say, over the past 18 months. I've been at Wynn as the CEO for four years, and the whole time I've been there, the top two drivers, and they toggle back and forth, is eviction and domestic violence. I won't get too weedy. I have uh, disagreements with how the city uh, gathers the question of why are you here at intake, and I think domestic violence might be higher than we think it is. Set that aside, it's the main drivers have always been uh, eviction or domestic violence. There is not more domestic violence now than there there was before, but but because of great efforts of society and the police department and government and and, and or, advocacy organizations, we are seeing uh, uh, survivors come forward more. I think the numbers we see, not just in shelter, but in society, are the tip of the iceberg. But it is a good thing that more people are coming forward to tell their story. Now, let's take the controller's report. And it says, which I agree with, domestic violence is a driving force for families into shelters. Now, at Wynn, we house, largest provider house, 10% of all the homeless families. 80% of our mothers report domestic violence in their adult lifetime, which really means 100, but 80%. We are not domestic violence designated shelters. Hmm. Okay. But we don't get any money from the city of New York, special money to address the 80% of our moms who have or are experiencing domestic violence. Now, if you want to get people out of, if you want shelter to be the most productive it can be to help people, and you don't want people to come back to shelter, right, that should really be our goal, and you know domestic violence is a driver into shelter, why wouldn't you have those shelters prepared and ready to take on domestic violence, to deal with the trauma of it, the at times immobilizing trauma of it, to deal with it with the, ch the children so the children don't grow, grow up and become batterers or, or survivors themselves. No one's looking, in my opinion, in this kind of continuum of how we could address things because all the administration cares about is getting to the day when there's a press release that the three of us can discuss that says we're not at the all-time high numbers. And by the way, the number is what it is. The more important number is how many people leave shelter and come back, because that is the definition of a failing system. I just want to touch on something you said, because it, it goes to a debate that has defined the homeless policy arena in the city for many years, which is between the kind of uh, housing first model or primarily economic uh, model of understanding homelessness, that this is an economic issue. It's about primarily about people not being af to afford a place to live. And so what you need to do is find them a place to live versus the other extreme, which is that people are homeless because of economic problems, but also uh, social issues, problems in their past, trauma, health, mental illness, and that merely giving them a place to live without treating those problems, those other issues, is you're dooming yourself to failure. And there's been tension between those two oh, and, and what they were opposing. Do you see them as opposed? Or do you think they 
both have a role in what we're diagnosing? Because the last thing we have any time for right now as it relates to homelessness is an academic ivory tower debate. All sides of that argument are correct. There's different reasons people end up homeless. There's different needs that need to be addressed. Not one of the 5,000 people, the 1,500 or 1,800 families we have at Wynn, not one of them has the same story. And for some, yeah, the quicker we get them out of shelter and into an apartment, the better. Others are months away from being able, being able to handle that, and others are you know, ready fairly quickly to stabilize and get into permanent housing, but it would be super beneficial if we could have folks for, say, you know, six months out of shelter up until 18 or 24 months out of shelter, visiting those people on a monthly basis just to check in to make sure everything's going okay. But look, housing first, that's right. We need to get more housing that's affordable. No question. We need to build it, and the mayor needs to immediately increase the amount of rental vouchers so those who languish, languish in shelter with vouchers can find apartments they can afford. Today, yesterday, that needed to happen. Today, yesterday, we need to open and run good, quality, safe shelters with the appropriate services. We're not in a situation right now to debate, and the truth is all sides are right, so let's just get working. So, so you've already identified a couple things that seem like you're. <laughs> this is not brain surgery. Yeah, this is not cancer that we don't know a cure to. It's a challenge in New York City that New York City is better than that we have not collectively. I don't know why I'm yelling at YouTube, but collectively, <laughs> go ahead. Stood up and taken on. So, so taken on the great crises of our times in this city. So, We're the leader in all battles, New York City. Why not this one? So, so you've identified. So let's let's try to tick these off then. So you've identified one thing is the city should be funding uh, counselors, social workers, others who are experts in working with domestic violence victims to go into shelters that are not designated as domestic violence yes. shelters. So that's one thing. Yeah, because the amount is so pervasive, and I would take that idea or take that point on domestic violence one step further. Mm-hmm. The city should do a deeper analysis. Or, or just let give money to a group like Wynn or someone else or Columbia University or NYU or CUNY to do it. Um, do a deeper analysis of what drives people into shelters, singles, men, single women, families. And then just as the domestic violence example illustrates, we should target those, the services that correspond to those drivers in all of the shelters. Mm-hmm. You know, we seem to, ri- and we do families, not singles. I want to be clear about that. But we all as a society seem to wring our hands every time something happens to a single homeless person on the street or a mentally ill single homeless person does something illegal or, or truly unfortunate. Well, we know there's an amount of mental health challenges in the single shelters. Why haven't we expanded and come up with the services to deal with that? similar point to the one on um, I'm making on families and domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So number two, you've said increase the the rental vouchers for people oh, being rehoused. Number three... Let me give you an example. Sure. For a family of... So let me just take back a second. So there's uh, rental vouchers. They're called the FAHEPs. 
it stands for something. I don't know what. So we're just going to call them the city's rental vouchers. And I applaud Mayor de Blasio for having reinstated those. They were cut by Mike Bloomberg. Applaud him for that. So right now, the voucher, which the voucher pays 70% of your rent, you you pay 30%. So people do have skin in the game. But it covers, the rent it will cover for a family of four citywide is $1,551. Everyone who's listening to listening to this show is scratching their head saying, where can a family of four find a decent, safe apartment for that amount of money? We've done a study nowhere in the borough of Manhattan. Very few neighborhoods in any of the five boroughs. We have legislation in the city council, thanks to Chairman Steve Levin, that will raise that amount significantly, either tagging it to the Section 8 voucher amount, a federal voucher, or to the fair market rent. We have people who are in shelter, thousands of people, waiting months and months working to try to find an apartment that will take their voucher. Upping the voucher amount will get people out of shelter, We'll get them better homes, we'll keep them out of shelter, and we'll cost far less than if we continue having to build and expand shelters. And it could happen quickly because building the new affordable housing, which should happen, you know, obviously takes time. And I'm grateful to, to Councilmember Steve Levin and his leadership, and I believe we, the council will with its, its great wisdom, pass this legislation uh, in the next session and, into law. And we now, get, I'd urge the mayor to step forward and just do it more quickly. He right. could make it a you know a fundamental plank of his state of the city. That would be great hmm. in the winter. Interesting seed to plant there. Um, and we won't get into it, but that also <laughs> that also relates, of course, to um, Assemblymember Andrew Hevesy's bill in Albany that would also kick the state uh, more into the the rental voucher game and and well, actually more about supporting people so they don't lose yeah. their homes. Um, but right. you hit on, you it, hit on, it's, it's, it's similar, but not the same. Right, right, right. Um, not to discredit no, no. this is to get people out, but right, yes, right. 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 And it, it, let's have more ideas out there. Yeah. And so I, I did want to hit on the other, the, the third thing I was going to get to, and you've, you just mentioned it again, which is this idea of opening more shelters, right? And this is obviously yeah. part of the, the mayor's plan a couple of years ago that he unveiled, you know, when he sort of redid his, his approach to homelessness, um, which was to get out of, to, or to, the plan is to get out of the hotels and the cluster sites mm-hmm. and open new shelters. Obviously, the 90 number was was put out there and they're they're a bit behind on that. But that's also where you come in. Right. And and the, the expansion of the shelter system, as you indicated, is necessary. Ideally, it would be less necessary than it seems like it is. Um, talk about opening new shelters and where that's at and where your organization comes in with working with sure. the city to try to open I assume you want to be in, you know, you want to be in charge of as many new shelters as as possible. Well, I want to be in charge of as many as is necessary and appropriate for us to be in charge of. Mm -hmm. But we will open two in the new year in Park Slope, Gowanus. We are built in the ground building a new one all under the mayor's new plan in Coney Island. And we just demolished a building on a piece of property, an old dilapidated building in Staten Island, where we also will build a new shelter under the mayor's plan. For a long time, you know, the city wasn't building new shelters. And and you can wish on a star for a lot of things. 
But you can't wish away the crisis of poverty and homelessness in a city that has grown increasingly unaffordable every single day. So there are homeless people. We know that. And when they come to us for help, which is required by law in New York to house the homeless, we have an obligation to provide them with a space that's going to assist them, help them, help them break the cycle of homelessness. When you don't have shelters, and remember, this is a legal mandate, then people get put into hotels. Think of, you know, the bad welfare hotels that we all had images of in the 1980s, in and around anymore, because, you know, uh, uh, Mickey Mouse is, but they exist in the city. And they also would mean taking over floors of hotel rooms and places like Holiday Inns, which are obviously better. But a wind shelter, and remember these are families, domestic violence, a wind shelter has 24-hour security. And CCTV cameras everywhere except the private room. These hotels have none of that. We have a a, a extensive social service, social service, maintenance, security, job training, camp for the kids, after-school homework help, daycare at all of our shelters. And so on the rollout of those shelters, is your message to the mayor and therefore the city at large, we need to accelerate the pace with which we're making these uh, sightings and openings? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We need, the city needs to, I applaud the Turning the Tides initiative. They need to get better, more streamlined, more efficient at implementing it. And particularly on this night, when it is so cold and unexpectedly wintry, those people who have said, if you open a shelter, I will burn it down, those pro people who protest, against having a good roof over a six-year-old child's health, a child's head, really think about why you hate homeless children, why you hate homeless people, why you're so vicious on a night like tonight when there's over 60,000 people in shelter. And our obligation is when, and good people's obligations, and the mayor's obligation is to stare down those hateful people in the face and say, we are moving forward. We're not afraid of you. You are the minority. The majority of New Yorkers love and care about their neighbors. We've even done polling at Wynn to prove that. Do you think that there is any... Is there any legitimacy at all to... I mean, you just mentioned that wind shelters have 24-hour security and cameras, and and I guess by by implication, or or maybe not, um, some shelters don't have that, and sometimes... my point the shelters do the hotels don't so but is there anything legitimate in the critique of the process community notification the role of community input i mean when you were a council member i don't know that you supported every shelter proposed in in your district and and so is that a problem in the process is that about the politics like how do we get how do we get past that and is there anything to say like we can make this a better system right i i opposed a 200 unit shelter for single men. I would not, if I was ever in the position, I would not propose 200 unit shelters for single individuals. Families, which I run now, we do 200, it's not a problem. So yes, one part of the process I would change is I would make single family shelter, single shelter small. But you know what? 
you can have a good process conversation and move to perfection on process till you're blue in the face. And there are good people out there who do want to talk about process, and then there's other people who just want to delay the process and hope that the homeless people will go away because of their fear. We can't get confused in which is which. There's a different critique out there I want to ask you about. It's a more, I guess, a more radical one. And it's about the system we have now versus, uh, I guess, potential other approaches to, to homelessness. And it, it, you know, sometimes refers to sort of a shelter industrial complex that obviously you have organizations. Oh, that, that for, is so for goddamn 20- well, okay, so talk about that because obviously there are, I mean, I, I agree with you that it's not, it's not legit, but, but talk about that. I mean, what would happen to these very well-equipped, smart, compassionate organizations like Wynn and others if, if the shelter system were not as large as it is now? And maybe it's always going to be this large, but what, what would that look like and, well, and how would that look yeah. like for you? So first of all, I didn't mean to bark at you, but for okay. viewers, the Independent Budget Office, whom I've always held in high respect, came out with this terrible report. We won't go into it, but they called us the shelter industrial complex. They should be ashamed of themselves. Okay. Now, look, I would love nothing more than to go into work tomorrow and put out a business on the side. I really would. But we have 60,000 people living in shelter. I think it's about 2,500 on the street. And the number we don't know of people who are living on couches and floors, et cetera. You can cancel all of Wynn's funding. We can, you can make every private funder who funds us take our money away, and people do that. They call companies that fund us and say, defund this group. You can do all of that. Where will the homeless go? Where will the homeless go? Beyond humanity, we have a legal requirement to house all the homeless. So where will, where will they go? When I tell, you know, the, the 200 families living at one of our shelters, you have to leave tomorrow. Where are they going to go? The vast majority of people who work for organizations like Wynn are not making a lot of money and could make a lot of money elsewhere. This is not what that's about. Let me connect those last couple of questions. Do you think um, it would be wise for, you know, when the mayor says something like we're going to open 90 new shelters, let's just even cut that, you know, in a third or a quarter. Do you think it would be wise to come out with something that's a little bit more of a, of a comprehensive plan in terms of siting and for the city to say, here's here's 20 sites so they're distrib- you know, they're distributed all over the five boroughs. This is a, you know, all New Yorkers are in this together. We're welcoming, you know, our homeless neighbors who happen to be falling on these very hard times, some for economic reasons, some for domestic violence reasons, some for other reasons. But here's a much more sort of big vision picture of where we're going to we're going to do this. Do you think that would help or hurt? Well, you know, academically, it would of course help in that type of a conversation. Mm-hmm. Politically and practically, it has positives and negatives, but just practically, logistically, it's incredibly difficult to find uh, a site for shelters. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. So if we were to, you know, <clears throat> kind of not move forward till say, we had 45 sites all ready to go at the same time, I just logistically think that could probably take, like, I'm slightly making this up, but like three years to pull something together like that. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, I like it. It's transparent. It's citywide. You know, 
people can't say it's only us. I just think logistically, I think it's it's hard and slows us down. So you're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI. We're on the line with Christine Quinn, the former city council speaker and current CEO of WIN, a major homeless services provider in the city. We've been talking about homeless policy, but let's shift in the few minutes we have left to some uh, political themes, if we could, political topics. And I'm curious, obviously, big news this week for the nation and especially the city where he used to be mayor is Mike Bloomberg jumping into the presidential race. You were in the council for the entirety of his mayoralty. You actually got there a couple years before he was elected, uh, served as speaker for obviously a substantial portion of his time in office. Uh, and so you got a, you've got a very good view of his leadership. You've uh, talked in the past week about his leadership or, or maybe lack thereof on homelessness. How do you assess in general his mayoralty over 12 years? And, you know, what do you think, what are you going to be looking for him to say or, or do uh, as a presidential candidate? Well, let me just say first on the, the politics of the presidential campaign, I, I don't understand the strategy. Like, I just don't understand how at this point in the race, when the field is narrowing, it's, it's a viable or appropriate point for anyone to enter the race, whether they consider themselves a moderate, as I believe the mayor does, or as somebody more, you know, radical or progressive. I just, as like a, you know, former campaign staffer, I don't <laughs> see it and I don't get it. As a Democratic leader, Big D, I also want the field now to be narrowing, to co- be coming together. Um, I don't want big changes or big explosions in the field because I want us to come together as quickly as we can because we have a known target opponent that we have to really be able to respond to as aggressively. So, I, you know, I could be all wrong and he could could carry the day, but this feels unfortunately tactically like a distraction. So that sounds a little bit like he's not on your short list for someone that you would support in the in the primary. Well, it's just too list. It's too late for anyone in this. For at this point in the process, you know, I have not endorsed a candidate. But it, it, anyone coming in now, it's, I just think they're too late, regardless of who they are, and, and regardless of how great they may or may not have been. Is there anybody in particular you've really liked what you've heard so far? You know, I think we're lucky to have, as Democrats, a really great, great field that's diverse in a lot of different ways. I mean, whether you think Mayor Pete should be mayor or not, what a fascinating guy. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. His life story, a veteran who came out as LGBT and got reelected in a small town mayor. You know, I, I think there's so much there that speaks to the future and to the breadth and depth, you know, uh, of uh, uh, the Democratic Party in New York, just as as an example. And to have a race where you have, uh, I may not get the numbers exactly right, but where you have, I think, you know, three women running for president, president, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Globuchar, uh, uh, Harris, all who are viable and have had really significant records in the Senate and in other places. That says a lot about our party. Mm-hmm. Thank you for getting I Marianne Williamson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Tusk right. And I don't know if Marianne Williamson is still <laughs> right, running. Right, right, right. Yeah, she didn't. It's a little further down the road, but 2021 obviously is is already actively being contested behind the scenes. Uh, when you look to that, what do you think that 
race is going to be about in the city. We know what 2017 was about, a referendum on de Blasio, 2013, to some degree, referendum on Amira Bloomberg. What do you think the next one's going to be about? Well, I hope the next mayoral race, as I would hope for all races, is about the challenges of the moment. And, and, and the positives that go on in our city that need to be cultivated and held up and move forward and the challenges like homelessness that that are uh, a negative in our city and and you know bringing our city down and holding back uh, uh, parts of our population and I hope the conversation around homelessness in the next mayor's race for example unites the reality that the affordability crisis and the homeless crisis in New York City are two sides of the exact same coin, and we need to start thinking about them in exactly that kind of a way. So I hope it's about the big issues of the day. Anything else you would put on that list right now in terms of the big challenges you think the city you know, is facing and really needs to you know, have a real robust public conversation around over the next few years? Well, you know, look, and some have started this, and I, I don't want to imply that it hasn't begun, and, and certainly Corey Johnson deserves a lot of credit for this, but we need to continue to have as a big, bold, and super specific conversation about mass transit, transportation, and car traffic on the streets. That's an issue that is not just a quality of life issue. It's an economic development issue. It's a job retention issue. It's critical uh, uh, to enabling this city to work and move and, and grow and make sure everyone, people who can't afford to live in the center of Manhattan, are part of that growth and that opportunity. Speaking of uh, jobs and development and such, ha- how have you reacted to the sort of this general atmosphere that, that uh, you know, I've started to hear a lot of people really concerned about as we head towards the next mayoral race, that there's a lot of concern around the city that there's kind of this really strong anti-development, anti-business atmosphere. Has that concerned you? Well, you know, I I think people have, and this is not unusual, you know, always raise concerns about things that are happening that are seen to be changing the face of our city or their neighborhood. You know, perhaps more specifically, and I, I, I see that happening, obviously, with all of the development that's been going on and people wanting to understand what it's done, what it will do. So I'm not I'm not surprised by that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the conversation about people being concerned or I don't know if anti is exactly the right word or business that feels I know a lot of people say that it feels a little strong to me. It, it reflects where our electorate is at right now and where it's been at for a while. The people are sick and tired of homeless people and low-income people and people who don't have the same educational access as others not having the same opportunity as, as other New Yorkers who end up being born in a zip, different zip code or with a roof over their heads or, you know, money in their parents uh, or the guardian's pocket. So I, I, I think that's a understandable anger and a great conversation to have. So on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you say <laughs> would depict the chances that you are a candidate in 2021 or at some later date for, for public office? You know, that sounds like a bet. <laughs> and I'm going to a little bit, you know, over-reveal my age, which is 53. The last time I bet on, on a race, it was the battle of the sexes with Ruffian. And that didn't end well <laughs> for her or for my bet. So mm. I'm not a bet girl. I learned that at... Six or seven, or however old I was when that race occurred. You 
you mentioned that right now it feels late for Michael Bloomberg to get into the the presidential race. Um, what what's the sort of timeline for someone, anyone, uh, but especially someone with a you know a deep background in city government and uh, and a little bit of money in the bank? Um, what what's the timeline on on you think? people getting into the the mayoral primary because that is going to be as as some might not even realize now in june in june of 2021 what do you think what do you think that timeline looks like i can't like solidify it in my head that it's Mm -hmm. june you know is right yeah three or september you know i don't i don't i honestly don't know the answer to that question it is obviously a question i probably should know the answer to (laughs) and one that i need to think about but i just i just don't know so i'm not going to pick a month out of thin air and oh, go ahead, Jared. I have one more, but go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just, I was, I'm going to ask if you, whether you're a candidate for mayor in the next election or not, which obviously there's a lot of speculation about. I've seen you ask multiple times. Again, here you you seem obviously hesitant to talk about that uh, quite yet. But whether you're a candidate or not, do you plan? Um, you know, are you going to try to be involved in that cycle in terms of this this sort of crisis that we have, really, with the gender imbalance in city government? Do you are you going to try to really make sure that we see um, a lot more women run for office and win offices right. in New York City? Well, you know, I've never been a, a, a wallflower, and as you could tell on this radio show, I even kept interrupting and yelling at you guys when you were really the messenger. So, me being able to control my mouth, <laughs> not a force. Right, not a forte. Uh, I've tried to make it into a strength, but not everyone finds it that way. So, uh, whatever position I am in in 2021, I'm going to use that position, whatever it may be, to advocate aggressively, strongly, and God willing, effectively on the issues I care about: women's issues, LGBT issues, the issues of homeless mothers and their children, the individuals, the issues of homeless single men and single women. The issues of those who've been incarcerated for too long or, you know, unfairly. The issues of sustainability and, and, and environmental issues and really make New York the, the, ur- the urban leader in the climate crisis. So whatever position I'm in, for whatever reason, I'm going to make sure my mouth is <laughs> loud and strong in 2021 on the issues I care about from mm-hmm. whatever perch I'm in. You just mentioned something quickly. I'll, we'll get your take on, then we'll get you out of here. Um, there's been a lot of conversation around policing in the subways and with relation to yeah. to homelessness, yeah. and wondering, you know, obviously. Um, as you indicated, most of the people that that applies to are not the types of clients you would have at win where you're dealing with families and, and children. They're, they're very often uh, single adults. But, but you know what? Go ahead. Yeah, The please. lady who was selling uh, churros, she could have been a single mom. Sure. That could have been, you know, her, her income that she had to try to get out of shelter. Absolutely. You know, we don't know. So, so what's your as you see some of this unfolding? The governor's plan to add 500 more uh, MTA police officers. The mayor announcing different um, you know initiatives related to helping people experiencing homelessness leave the subway system. What are you thinking? Look, no one wants to live in the subway. No one wants to live or sleep in the subway. And anybody who says they 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 do just don't know what they're talking about or are really kind of unkind. No one wants to live there, you know, and people who don't have access to jobs in the traditional marketplace have to make a living. And this woman, for example, that we're talking a lot about selling her churros was making a living the best she could. And there's no evidence she was ever hurting anyone. There was no evidence she blocked 
egress out, out of the, the subway when there was an emergency. There was no issue of anything. Look, we have to have a city that is orderly, et cetera, but we have to have a city that is kind. We can't lose our kindness. What we did to that woman, based on what I've read, and I've seen nothing that she was dealing drugs underneath the churros, nothing like that. It simply was unkind. And I don't think that should happen. We need to every now and again cut people a break. So final question for me, and I appreciate your taking so much time with us, but you know, you have, as you mentioned, you've been at Wynn now for four years. That's the longest, I believe, you have, you have worked in a non-government job during your long and illustrious career. And I'm curious, given that, any perspective that that's given you on, on government, on what works about it, what doesn't, something people outside government don't understand about that they should, something you've learned that you would take back to a, a new post in government from having been outside it in this key policy issue but in a very different capacity for the past four years? Oh, absolutely. And let me tell you, anybody who ever wants to be chief executive of a county, a city, or a state or country – should, should run a group like WIN because it changes your perspective. I now see really clearly how we don't fund our service providers correctly. We don't listen to them when they come forward with needs, that everything is, is too driven by, you know, the Office of Management and Budget and the, and the you know, number crunchers that it's not first by the issue. I've also seen how we not giving enough resources also burden uh, 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 not-for-profits and service providers with unnecessary reporting and and uh, things like that that we think, and I look, I'm sure some of the ones that I are a pain to me right now are ones I passed, maybe even sponsored, right? Because there is a hunger for information from the legislature and, and the executive, and I appreciate that, but they have to remember there are people who are not getting paid, we don't get any resources for, we have to fundraise privately to do those things. Also, I just am struck by the lack of partnership, the adversarial posture government takes towards service providers and how little the, in the process of things like budgeting and contracting is there a willingness or an openness to actually hear the voices of the client? And I think, you know, being able to bring that experience, which is why it's important that we have campaign finance reform in New York City so people who are social workers and child care workers, et cetera, can run is really important because it does change your perspective in a very, very powerful way. Well, I that just is- was having a conversation with a former uh, commissioner last night at an event. He was saying the exact same thing. Interesting. Well, that is really good um, fodder for another conversation, and we'll uh, we'll have you back to talk about that and and more. Uh, Christine Quinn, thanks very much for taking a lot of time with us here today. Thank you, and I promise the next time I'm on, I'll interrupt less. Oh no, we we like a good feisty conversation, so we're ha- we're happy to happy to have it. And I think you apologized uh, both times for, as you said, barking. So that yeah, was you're, you're forgiven. We 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 appreciate it. Thank you. Take and, care. Uh, everyone, just bundle up and check on everybody, your parents, your friends, your neighbors, people who aren't feeling well, because it's, it's really, really cold. Indeed. Thank All you. All right. Take, take care. care. Have okay. So, thoughts? That was a good long talk, uh, which we like to have with our, to our guests. There. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, 
on the homelessness issue, what comes through is just the you know the sense that De Blasio has has certainly made some moves on the vouchers she talked about, uh, turning the tide plan, opening some shelters. But uh, as on so many of the other issues that he has had trouble with, it's the the lack of a defined plan early enough in his administration, the lack of real political ownership of it, of staying on it, of being in the forefront about it. Um, you know, turning the tide is the current plan, but I believe that was the second or third iteration of approach to it. And it just has been hard for him to really get the reins on this issue, which is frankly an issue that no one is going to solve. It's not going to go away in any permanent sense, but just the salute, the, the, the sense that there is a, a working policy in place. I think we, we still feel as though we're kind of grasping for it. Right. And I think, I think that is something I think about all the, uh, all the time with a variety of policies from this mayor, which is it's not always clear what the vision is. It's not always clear how the pieces work together. Um, and I don't know if this is so much just about how he presents things, whether he doesn't talk in specific enough language, that he's not quite prepared enough sometimes, or he doesn't sort of release a big plan and then really continue to follow it through with like, press conference after press conference where he says, okay, here's the progress we're making on this. Now here's the progress. Here's how it fits with this other announcement we made. I mean, he does some of that. Well, interesting. He does that on crime stats, which is interesting, how, just how Monthly. faithful he is to that, to having the same thing every month with the banner on the dais yep. and, and all the brass out there because he identified that early on as his biggest potential vulnerability, right? That he'd be seen as presiding over a city that was becoming more and more dangerous and in fact, the opposite has been true. If that same approach could be applied to other things, and I think it could have, it would have been great because you would have been able to say, like, here's where the numbers are. I mean, obviously, the homeless numbers are not going to look as good as the crime numbers, but you have the sense that he was in charge, fully vested in this policy he had, and you just don't get that sense with the episodic approach to these big issues. Well, also, if you do that, you have a chance to use the bully pulpit better. You have a chance to, you know, move things along quicker because you're really giving, you know, a sense to everybody in your administration and beyond that you are executing as the chief executive is supposed to do. So we can come back to Mayor de Blasio another time. We obviously talk about him plenty on the show. Um, I'll just say, you know, finally, um, you know, I thought Christine Quinn obviously is considering running for mayor in the next election cycle. Um, you know, she was pretty cagey, obviously, about that and cagey even about Mike, Michael Bloomberg entering the presidential race. But it was pretty clear from what she said that she doesn't really see a path for him and isn't really considering backing him, which is which is interesting, I think. It is interesting, yes. Her answer to the uh, question about whether she's going to run or not was not to answer, which, of course, means she did not say sure. no. And, of course, that means we and our colleagues will ask that question a thousand times yeah. again. But you've been listening to Max and Murphy back and very happy to be back on WBAI. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're here every Wednesday at 5. Stay tuned to WBAI all evening, all evening for some great programming. Until next week, he's been Max. I'm Jarrett Murphy. Have a great week in the greatest city in the world.